0: The first entry deadline for Mumbrella's Travel Marketing Awards is this Friday, 19th of May. Start putting the final touches on your entry now to avoid the $110 late fee. Make sure you're in the running to win one of the 14 key categories for travel agencies, brands, and media. Head to mumbrella.com.au forward slash travel awards to enter. Has done away with the CMO role, appointing Amanda McVeigh as its first chief customer officer, replacing Lisa Ronson. And the work from home debate reaches boiling point after Sean Cummins stokes the fire. Then, a chat with Group M's new chief investment officer, Melissa Hay, before we catch up with Tracy Spicer on her new book, Exploring the Built In Biases of AI Technology Man Made How the Bias of the Past is Being Built into the Future. Welcome to another edition of the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Callum Jasmin. And joining me today for the News Chat is Editorial Director Damien Francis. Hey, Damo.
1: Hey, mate. How you doing?
0: Doing very well. Thank you. Editor Shannon Malloy. Welcome back, Shannon. Hello. And for her last very sad appearance, well, the appearance won't be sad, but it's sad that she's going, it's uh, reporter and producer Khalil Welch. Yeah,
2: thanks for having me, Cal. End of an era. Really sad to be... Um... Having my last appearance on the podcast, but we'll enjoy it while it lasts.
1: Your your little introduction to Shannon had a double meaning as well. Because not only is he back on the podcast, he's back from Brisbane. A couple of days at the Brisbane Writers Festival, Shannon, because you've outdone us all in the fact that you're actually a published author and we're just sitting here as like chump. Journalists, mate. How did how did Brisbane Writers Festival go?
3: It was great. It was uh it was good to be home, good to catch up with some old friends, and uh yeah, did two sessions up there uh for my new book and uh it was a great turnout.
1: You can shameless plug the book. We're gonna oh, allow it. I, w-
3: I will at every opportunity. It's called You Made Me This Way. It's in all good bookshops as well as available uh audiobook and digitally.
0: I hate to burst your bubble demo, but that was the intended meme. So oh. there you go. Think, I think you think, well, you're, think you're smart. Read the script, I didn't see it in
1: there. You're just you're, you're throwing in curveballs everywhere.
0: Not everything goes in the script. Some of it stays up in my head. So, uh, Kalila, before we dive into it, you are um, you are leaving. Why why are you leaving us? Give us a give us a quick thirty second rundown.
2: Wow, thirty second spiel. Um, in in short, I'm going back to finish my masters um, full time because it was a question of. 10 weeks, 12 weeks study versus a year part-time slogging it between North Sydney, the inner West and the Eastern suburbs, which doesn't sound like what I want to do. So I'm going to do that. And I've managed to be a little bit cheeky and sneak in a nice little three month sabbatical in Europe before I go back. So it's not all bad.
0: Look, inner west to uh, eastern suburbs doesn't sound too hard, uh, but we'll, we'll let <laughs> that, you off. That there. sounds
2: like a Melbourneite saying that. So, well,
0: yeah, it definitely is. Anyway, let's um, let's crack into this. We are very sad to see you go, Khalil, but we can uh, we can chat about that more later. Our first topic: Mumbrella reported this morning that Coles has finally filled the shoes left by former CMO Lisa Ronson when she exited the business back in October. The retail giant has become the latest to replace the CMO role with a chief customer officer, that being Amanda McVeigh, who will arrive next month from her native United States. She joins with more than two decades of experience in the category, most recently as Group Vice President for Marketing and Digital at Mayer, which is an American superstore retail giant, I think the likes of Walmart. Uh, Damo, first up, the two biggest or off the top of my head, biggest CMO gigs that were going this year, those being IAG and Coles, have been turned into chief customer officer appointments. You wrote a little bit about uh, this earlier in the year in the the weekend mumbo, asking if the market had killed the CMO title. Um, in this instance, obviously, as we understand, the remit's growing for McVay. What, what do you make of all this? I
1: think it's uh, fantastic. I think it's well needed, frankly. Uh, the idea that this person is uh, at the head of all customer connections it is a great thing. I think the board, I think the C-suite will be able to understand the, the complexity and the depth that the role provides here, whether it's IAG or whether it's Coles um, or other businesses who are looking to do this. I think it's just a really good move for the industry in general because at the center of everything that a market does is the customer anyway, whether it's B2C or or B2B. So the title in itself, it's a small thing, but I think it means uh, a fair bit. Uh, I'd love to see it going that way a a little bit more as well into the future. I think it's just really interesting as well if you connect that then with uh, the third quarter results that Coles released. If you read that document, there's a lot in there that is focused on the customer itself and Coles refocus on the customer. So having written that in the report, I think it's a very uh, apt thing to do to retool the title of this key role.
0: Yeah, and I I think the really interesting thing is obviously they've waited quite a while, but Coles, it's important to know, has been going through a bit of a transitional period. Um, Stephen Kane stepped down as CEO and Leah Weckert, who is um, kind of, it's, it's, it's been written about that this is sort of the perfect example of how to get your CEO ready for the role. She joined quite a while ago, I think from McKinsey, she's done the rounds. Um, she was sort of the anointed leader. And then since Ronson departed, um, Weckert's actually been um, heading up in an interim basis, the marketing division, um, in addition to some of her other responsibilities. So she has a very kind of deep and intimate understanding of the division. Um, This is obviously her first big appointment. Um, It's an expanded remit. Uh, McVeigh's going to be reporting directly into um, Weckert. So she's, you know, uh, of course that was the case before, but um, she's got a very intimate relationship, I think, going forward with um, Weckert. And I guess, as you mentioned there, Coles are really putting an emphasis on... um, the connected customer experience. Just on the chief customer officer role, a few just to, to kind of list off here in market that have kind of been appointed into that same title. We've got Jeff Eiken at Maya, um, Josh Grace at Colonial First State, of course, Michelle Klein, who's been av- appointed as chief customer and marketing officer at IAG. We have Amy Childs at Belong, Andrew Stein at the Reject Shop amongst others. Um, you mentioned performance a little bit there Damo but of course uh, it's a big move bringing in an outsider Um, that being someone a marketer coming in from America obviously there aren't too many we do have um, Susan Coghill at Tourism Australia which is uh, obviously uh, a little bit ironic we have an American selling our country to the world but um, of course the Americans are much further down the line Uh, I guess, in the retail sector and marketing in the retail sector, and in particular, the retail media sector. McVeigh was responsible for establishing Maya's um, retail media setup in America during her last role there. And now, obviously, with Coles 360 about a year or so into its establishment, Brooks will be reporting into her. Um, But of course, from a kind of personal sense, Damo what what can we sort of see that this suggests about Coles moving away from such a well-known local marketer like Ronson to someone like McVeigh?
1: Yeah, it looks really interesting. I think just touching on the Susan Cockle part quickly, who better to sell Australia to uh, foreigners than someone who's been you know on that side of the fence previously uh, before? Anyway, I digress. Uh, to your question, Carl, I think McVeigh is coming into Coles at a time where Coles isn't doing too badly. So if you have a look at that uh, report that I mentioned, the third quarter report, uh, look, generally shares have gone up in 2023. Uh, Again, generally, you know, always a a bit of a rocky road up and down. Uh, It's not far off the 52-week high at the moment, the the share price at at $18. Um, Third quarter sales, uh, supermarkets uh, up 7% year-on-year, liquor up 2.6%. Year-on-year year, group sales revenue up six point five percent year-on-year, uh, so it's a, a relatively healthy business at the moment. They've recently disposed of Coles Express uh, as well, and like I say, that there was that big note about being customer-centric uh, in that report, which I think is really interesting, particularly as it relates. To this uh, this role. And a lot of mention about the campaign around dropped and locked, which is essentially in this economic environment that we're in, the real basic meat and potato stuff about marketing uh, you know supermarket goods, dropping the price and keeping it that way. That's what consumers want at the moment. They've extended that campaign to July. There are 300 products currently involved in that. The outlook uh, is suggested that it's modest growth for the fourth quarter, which, again, in the circumstances is is pretty good. So I think McVeigh is set up uh, in a business that is doing relatively well at the moment under the circumstances uh, to be able to get her feet, uh, find find her feet, I should say, uh, without huge amounts of pressure straight away. But like you say, you know, Lisa Ronson, there is, uh, there's a lot of history in, uh, that, that she's uh, you know, left uh, in this role, some very interesting campaigns that she did. I think parents are probably still cursing her for the amount of uh, collectibles that they've got around the house. But um, those mini collectible plastic ones, which went through how many iterations? I don't know, like Christmas specials as well. I think I've still got the plastic toilet paper just hanging around the house. So maybe not that to think.
0: You do need a lot of toilet do, paper in your We house do. There, There's
1: demo. a lot of boys in our house. But anyway, <laughs> moving along, um, I think uh, McVeigh is is in a good position uh, at the moment uh, in a brand that's doing relatively well.
0: Yeah. And I, I guess just to, to kind of um, cap off on your point there, Damo, uh, I think it's important to note that Despite all these numbers, it's a, it's a it's a very hard job leading one of uh, Australia's two um, major major retailers. Um, retail marketing in general is a pretty tough gig, and I think um, I think there w- there was a bit of acknowledgement of that when when Ronson departed the role last year. She you know she pretty much joined just on the eve of, of COVID, and then had to um, I guess be on top of that throughout those COVID years. So it'd be interesting to see. Um, as you say, the, the business is in a good spot now. Um, they've got their consolidated or, I guess, bespoke agency partners in its Smith Street model now. Um, so we'll, we'll look forward to, and I don't think it'll just be us looking forward to seeing what Coles produce in the, the coming months and years. Coming up after the break, the work from home debate rolls on. It's been a big start to the week for Mumbrella's comments section as readers jumped to have their say after Cummins & Partners founder Sean Cummins expanded on his thoughts regarding a return to the office. Speaking to Mumbrella, Cummins said that industry leaders were scared to voice support of returning to the office post-COVID, declaring that it'd become a one-sided conversation and that he was tired of the dogma. Piers Cummins has ruffled a few feathers here, Shannon, but it's important to note that, like every argument, there are a few that agree with him, despite the fact that, uh, if you were to look at our comments section, the majority Some very probably passionate don't. people. I have to say,
3: um, look, as someone who's lazy and loves staying in more than going out, I get it. I get the uh, the lure of working from home, but also on the flip side, I think he has a point about the value of collaboration, particularly in creative industries. I think. I'm at my best when I'm around colleagues, you know, with, with a similar mindset, working on similar projects, being able to throw ideas around. Uh, I know that there's days that when I work from home where I don't speak until the end of the day, which is very unusual for me, if anyone knows me. Um, I think the, the pushback is that, you know, I feel like we're here to stay, probably. I think a return to the office five days a week is not going to happen. Uh, and and employees uh, like that for the most part, and, and they don't want to go back to, to that world. So I think when anyone kind of puts up a, a different viewpoint, uh, there's, there's an emotional pushback on that. I think some of the comments were a little unfair. Uh, you know, if you dug down and, and read past the headline and first few pars, you kind of see Sean say that flexibility is the key. Uh, and I think that is that's that's the kind of final message. Really, is that flexibility is where we're at.
0: Yeah, it's um, it's it's sort of been despite the fact that Sean's comments were very illuminating in themselves, but seeing the dialogue that and the narrative that has come out of this has arguably been even more interesting. I mean, we had a. We had a piece from um, LinkedIn's uh, APAC head of channel sales this morning on the website, Lara Brownlow. Um, She wrote, the traditional work week established a century ago when men went to work and women stayed home no longer suits our current reality. Both men and women have been juggling work and family responsibilities, leading to immense stress and causing many women to leave the workforce for decades. It's sort of, I mean, if we take that comment in isolation, it sort of feels like, covid has brought about a change um much more speedily that was needing to be had almost anyway um you know damo we in in your instance you, you know you do the school pickup the school run someone needs to do that um beforehand you know these things were not really or maybe you know anecdotally not accepted as just part of your day beforehand i mean me personally um i've worked at home or i guess uh remotely for almost two and a bit years since I joined Mumbrella it's just you know you kind of adapt to these things but um, as you say Shannon it's not it's not black and white you can't or no one I don't think um, at least in my demographic is going to maybe accept a return five days a week demo.
1: I think there's a there's a couple of things at play here. You you mentioned this the school run, like just the practicalities of life, whether you're a parent or not. And I know Shannon's in a very similar boat to me. You know, previously to uh, to to Lara's point, you know that wasn't necessarily a, a thing that males did, and I'm very glad that we're not in that situation anymore. Uh, but the you know the fact of the matter is we all have a life reality that has changed subsequently with COVID. And so there's two things in my mind that are mixed in here. Number one on the work from the office argument or the positive work from the office argument is, and I find this is particularly relevant for younger people um, in the workforce or people who have just joined a different industry. The amount you can learn from just being around people is, is huge. Uh, And I remember dealing with you, Cal, when you started an umbrella on this and and you were, you know, jumping up and down telling me how the hell do I meet people these days? How do I get in front of people? And it was such a valid point, you know, but also you not being able to be around the news team at that time. Uh, You know, so that's the one thing. And I'd encourage you know, a a younger set of people or people without that experience in their particular industry to get into the office as much as they can. So long as there are other people around them, because, you know, it's equally useless if you're just going to an empty office. Um, but that's not to say flexibility shouldn't exist because it really should. We don't necessarily need to do five days in the office. And here's where I'd probably say, where is the industry push here, whether it's our industry or other industries on the state governments, uh, chris minns etc now you know the amount of comments that we had on that story going it takes me two hours to get to work or something now why is that though that is because essentially our transport in sydney i speak for sydney Now, transport in Sydney is crap. I'm sorry, but it is. So if you want people to go into the city, we're already priced out of living near the city. So if you're going to live further out, which most people have to, and you want people in the CBDs, whether it's Sydney, whether it's Parramatta, whether it's any of those other satellite CBDs, get the transport right. Fix the transport. People will come in. Don't let them sit there for an hour, an hour and a half. But that's an industry thing that they have to push the state government for. If they want that to happen,
0: but I mean, anecdotally as well, speaking to to people following the the piece on Monday, it does feel a little bit like um, there's there's a sense of a generational divide a little bit on the topic as well. It's not that's not a blanket term, but I think that there is and probably justifiably a sense where people who are in um, roles now where they've had successful careers, they've you know they've obviously earned the position to be in what they're in, and they're saying, well, look take it from me. This worked for me. I learned a lot from being around my colleagues. I, you know, uh, what's the term? Learning through osmosis or whatever. And I think one thing that does slightly concern me is when we see comments on our our website where people say, oh, well, I'm an introvert and I don't actually get anything out of social interactions. It is a little bit concerning because, you know, you speak to some people and you, you get the impression that some people are trying to almost remove themselves from society and social interactions, which... I guess if you're going in that direction on the kind of black and white scale, yeah. it's I mean, not a good I've thing. I've had
3: colleagues over the years that I would have loved to remove myself from being around. Um, it's not He's looking very,
1: very <laughs> heavily at me at the no, moment. No, no,
3: not you guys. Um, I think one final point that I think uh, is missed is that perhaps some of the passion uh, that we're seeing in the comments is from employees that are maybe a bit cynical about you know what employers are saying because what we had three years ago Pre-COVID was a world where we were told it was impossible to work from home. It was too hard to decentralise cities. It was never going to happen that we could be remote. And then in the space of a week when lockdowns happened, companies pivoted quite successfully. Uh, And so why, why would employees believe what employers are telling them about the way things should be?
2: Um, Just adding on that uh, as well, and, and to speaking to, I think, the generational divide, Cal, I think also you can sense that it is quite hard for junior employees to hear from you know, senior people that are very well established, very successful and, and have all of the um, benefits, I guess, that comes with that, whether that is living centrally, whether that is, is having a really comfortable wage um, or, or having support around the home. Um, and I think people see that and they feel misunderstood and they feel like they're being expected to live by the same rules as somebody that um, potentially has a lot easier um, kind of path forward when it comes to being in the office.
0: Well put. Uh, coming up after the break, a chat with Group M's new chief investment officer, Mel Hay. Melissa Hay, newly appointed chief investment officer at Group M. Welcome to the podcast.
4: Thank you. Great to be here.
0: Great to have you on. And uh, I, I guess before we get into uh, into work stuff, um, you were just saying how you've actually managed to have a little bit of time away from the industry. How was that?
4: Yeah, it was great to really switch off and enjoy uh, a long break. I travelled overseas to really get away from it all as well. Did miss out on a lot of things that happened over that time though.
0: It's always bound to happen. I, I think uh, you, you have to accept that as part of the, part of the price you pay for a little bit of relaxation. So Mel, uh, you have just joined Group M, replacing Seb Rennie, who has now moved uh, across to Southern Cross Stereo. What what attracted you about the opportunity, I I guess, of joining Group M from from OMD, other than the uh, the obvious of um, rejoining your old boss, uh, being Amy Buchanan?
4: Yeah, Amy was a part of it. I think I viewed it as a new opportunity and a new challenge, really. As you sort of alluded to, I'd been at OMD for a long time and have had the experience in agency. So probably being able to understand the group world was something new and different. And then also the other side as well, being in that group role, you get to sort of see more what's happening on the product development. So one of the areas was also coming over and working with Ryan Menzies on that product world in Nexus.
0: And I guess uh, obviously at OMD you had um, a similar group model, but how, how do you see that sort of differentiating between the Omnicom media group uh, operating model to then I guess you've got maybe what is commonly seen in market as maybe a little bit more integrated over at Group M.
4: Um, honestly, still probably getting my head around all of the different products, but there are more of them than where Omnicom is. And it's slightly different, like you said, because it's more structured at a group level. Omnicom, we had a lot at the agency level and a lot of capability at agency level. So there was a slight nuance there. And yeah, I'm still getting my head around that side of it from a group, but product is where the exciting part is, and I think both both Holco groups have got a lot to offer. They're just sort of different approaches from what I can see so far.
0: And then you obviously um, you had a very successful career with OMD. You were there. Um, for, for a, a heavy stint, um, what, what, from your perspective, kind of from the outside now, maybe having had a little bit of time to reflect on, it, I don't know if maybe you were doing any of that while you were off uh, overseas, what, what do you sort of see um, as being down to the success of the agency over the past 15 years? Is it um, maybe good succession planning, internal promotions, they having the structure of a global network or is it talent or is it something else?
4: I think there's a lot to it. What a big part of it, definitely, was talent within the agency and um, the people that were there, and just all the collaboration amongst the people and how we worked together was really strong. And we had been together for a long time. Uh, we also were on a journey and evolving and sort of watching the market. And we have. And they still do have leaders that actually really believe in that and are looking towards the future. So I think that was part of it. And yeah, the global assets as well that were coming down again from Omnicom really strong that helped build that out to be ready and future-proofing.
0: So at OMD, as probably most of our listeners are aware, there was a very long list of clients uh, that you would have been dealing with every other day. And now, obviously, you've got uh, a, a brand new set, um, a, a very long list as well to play with and uh, strategize over. Um, what's this sort of approach from your uh, perspective? Obviously, you won't have done all the rounds yet, but um, no, in yeah. terms of getting to know and then forming a sort of strategy for, for all these different clients that you're going to be dealing with.
4: I think it's slightly different because I'm in the group role as well um, my role there and going out to seeing clients will be in association or in conjunction with the agency leads I think that's really important and working alongside them so going out and supporting them in areas um, and probably leading and showcasing more of the future and where the market is going and having our perspective and talking about our products coming through with the teams is how I see my role could be different because I actually haven't again experienced it yet, but that's how I see um, my role at this stage.
0: And then I guess um, this is a little bit of a a multi-pronged one. Um, in terms of uh, the – you mentioned before it's a little bit more internalised at a group level, um, Group M, and its um, its approach. What, what's sort of the, the strategy then with um, this sort of investment policy? Have you, have you spoken about that at all or is it a matter of get to know everything first and then kind of get into the finer details?
4: Uh, definitely get to know everything first and the way the it operates because I'm still getting my head around – I don't have a whole different view on things now. Hearing it from the inside that which is really important and different to sort of just not having an understanding at all and just looking on the outside in. It's definitely more group focused, I would say, versus where I'm coming from, which is an exciting thing for me um, and. Because I still want to be part of those conversations and also be, I guess, definitely in the client solutions place. So being able to have the best of both worlds really in a group role uh, is, uh, I think, is, is what is the offering here at Group M. That's probably slightly different to Omnicom, that was really focused
0: in the brands. But then, of course, at the same time, you have to, I guess, uh, treat each of the agencies with nuance and kind of obviously they've, they've got their different offerings and different um, different kind of uh, oh, yeah. strong points for, for clients and market. Well, that's
4: something that I really haven't touched on at all, but I'm very, very conscious of that, especially because I have come from an agency background. I want to ensure that, yes, that the agency's nuances and visions are what are coming through more than anything but and, I don't um, know them yet. <laughs> I'm learning.
0: <laughs> of course, of course. Uh, and then I guess one thing that um, your predecessor, Seb Rennie, spoke about um, quite a lot in, I, I guess, the last 12 months or so of of his time at Group Enemies, something that's also been a focus um, at a global level within the group, and that's... Um, I guess, decarbonizing advertising as it's sort of put. is there, Can you talk us through a little bit um, if you have a sort of opinion on this, um, if that's something that's going to still remain as a front focus for Group M? Uh,
4: again, so I think it is important. I think as an industry, it's really important that we are looking at this. It's everything. It's what people are talking about all the time. And if, as an industry, we weren't taking this into consideration. We would definitely be missing our opportunity to play a role and so I think it will stay on the agenda clients want it to stay on the agenda they are wanting to learn and understand how as well and how we can make things better and improve uh, yeah the quality for them and so at um Group M, it still is a big part I'm yet to sort of delve into it really deeply but it is um they've got a respons- responsible investment framework and that forms a really important part of it.
0: And then uh, I guess from um from a personal perspective outside of your your group, M. I guess, look, looking forward. Um, obviously, you've been at the cutting edge of Australia's media industry for the, the last, um, however long. What, what's your sort of, um, what's your sort of view on how Australia's media landscape has changed in in recent years? Are there any kind of standout points that have maybe surprised you, or or anything like that?
4: One of the big things, obviously, over the last couple of years is how fast-paced things have changed in the world of digital and essentially bringing through more around addressability, uh, the consumption as well on all forms of digital uh, across all the video platforms. And I think Commerce is another big play as well and so looking at how that's moving a lot quicker. So those are the areas that I have fast-tracked, I feel, over the last couple of years more so because of COVID and it's interesting that they're still running at pace and it actually it's a great time to be in media I'd say because of so much change happening it means you you actually have to move along with it you're always learning and you're actually all always discovering what is out there and new opportunities for our clients.
0: Mel well, it's been uh, great having you on and uh, good luck in the coming weeks and months.
4: Great thanks Callum.
0: Up next, a chat with Tracy Spicer on her new book Man Made: How the Bias of the Past is Being Built into the Future.
3: Tracy Spicer, thanks so much for your time.
5: Thanks for having me, Shannon.
3: Congratulations on this book. It's everywhere at the moment. Uh, I'm I'm deep in it as we speak and loving it. But for those who haven't heard about man-made, what is this book about? Give us the kind of elevator pitch.
5: The book's about how the bias of the past is being built into the future through technology, how we're saturated in artificial intelligence from the moment we wake up in the morning to the time our head hits the pillow at night. And with all of these chatbots and things that we think are actually helping us in the workforce, not only will they end up ending our jobs and uh, creating huge social dislocation, they will embed sexism, racism, ableism, all types of bigotry even more deeply and exponentially into society, which kind of sounds very dark. My message is a little bit dystopian. But I've written the book in a really uh, entertaining, engaging, humorous layperson's way because we need to understand this problem before we can deal with it.
3: It is there, there is a lot of humour in here and a lot of sarcasm, which I love. <laughs> um, but this, is, this is a little scary when you think about it, not just for journalists like us who could be replaced by chat GTP and all the rest of it, but, but just for, for ordinary people and how they interact with this technology, sometimes without even thinking about it. Like it's, This is potentially quite scary, right?
5: That's right. Think about people in their home. We use Siri, we use Alexa, we use voice recognition technology every day. This technology is embedded into our cars, into smart elevators. Every time we Google, every time we send an email, we're using artificial intelligence. And yes, you're right. I was reading some stuff about the journalism business today and how quickly news organisations are embedding AI, particularly ChatGPT, in creating news articles and even feature articles now, which is really problematic because a friend of mine tried ChatGPT to write a story about an engineer and a childcare worker the other day. And every time she tried it, the engineer was male and the childcare worker was female. So if we don't have human oversight in the use of these technologies, it will defer To a scene from Mad Men, like a 1950s workplace where you've got your John Draper and all of the females working for him. In fact, there's a newer version of ChatGPT called AutoGPT, where the boss AI is male and it creates mini-me's AI assistants who are all universally female. So I think we need to see these patterns around us in order to be able to break, break them down and reduce the bias and also explain to people around us, our friends and colleagues and children, what is actually happening?
3: Yeah, it's kind of like those awareness videos that you see where, you know, you go into a kindergarten classroom and and you ask little girls what they want to be when they grow up and little boys what they want to be when you grow up. And there's that kind of like stereotypical gender role stuff that is just there from pop culture and from, from the media. So these, this technology you're saying is kind of learning from from our little inherent biases and, and that's not a great foundation to be built on.
5: Yes, and it's often a light bulb moment when you explain this stuff to people via storytelling. For example, there's a story in the book about an automated soap dispenser that was distributed through Marriott hotels around the world. A Nigerian tech worker went to use it, but when he put his hands under it, it just didn't work. However, if he put a white piece of paper under it, it did work. Now, that went around the world virally on Twitter and became known as the racist soap dispenser, a shocking example of the bigotry being embedded into these machines. But some people listening might think, oh, well, it's a soap dispenser, who cares? Well, think about this. That same technology is embedded into self-driving cars, which might come to a pedestrian crossing, see a white person and stop. But if it's a person of colour, they won't recognise them as a human. So this is not just, oh gosh, female voice chatbots are sexist. Yes, they are and they reinforce stereotypes. But this is even deeper. This can become a matter of life and death.
3: And those those examples of, you know, the soap dispenser or, or Siri or whatever there, uh, is that what you refer to when you use the term baby biases, which I love, by the way?
5: <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, I've tried to explain it in really simple terms. It took me a long time to get my head around it. So this is how it happens. When they create artificial intelligence, they lean on large data sets. Now, large data sets is basically just scraping everything off the internet, all the kind of bigotry that people carry on with and put online. That's what's put into the data sets. So you've got this bias from the get go. And it's not just that. These are historical data sets. So one of the biggest repositories, the Irving Center in California, Almost every doctor is a male and every nurse is a female because they've got a lot of data from the 1980s and 90s. So you start off with this historical bias. Then you've got the programmer who's got their own unconscious bias and they build that into the algorithm because we all have unconscious biases. Then the third step is machine learning where the baby bias in that algorithm becomes a troublesome teenager. I describe machine learning as a white supremacist going down the rabbit hole of conspiracy theory websites, and there was a terrible example of that on Twitter a couple of years ago with a chatbot created by Microsoft called Tay. Within 24 hours, Tay became an anti-feminist neo-Nazi because Tay had learned that Uh, racism and bigotry was very big on Twitter and that's the way that Tay should behave and she went right down the rabbit hole on that and even increased exponentially her own biases.
3: Wow Uh, I do remember that and that being a really scary example that you can destroy kind of innocence in 24 hours or less.
5: Yeah that's right it happens so quickly and the problem with machine learning and generative AI is that there is no human oversight on it most of the time and it happens very very quickly so that's why we need to bring some humanity into this sector sooner rather than later.
3: Do you have any examples or thoughts on how this kind of you know this bias and this this technology that's really you know off to a rocky start might manifest itself in the media and marketing worlds? Can you sort of give our our listeners a a taste of how I guess this might Um, You know, erupt if if we we don't take action now.
5: Most of the people around the world who I interviewed said the media and democracy are the two big areas of danger. Because when you think about something like ChatGPT, if you leave that to write news stories and it makes them bigoted, sexist, biased, incorrect, we know that ChatGPT makes up quotes. It takes incorrect quotes. You know, it's it's not really smart enough to say, I probably should get a quote from the New York Times or a credible source. It'll take quotes from people's Facebook posts. So this is a huge threat to democracy and this will affect the media in a lot of different ways. One way is that people have reduced trust in the media already. Journalists, as we know, are down there with used car sales people. <laughs> so it will reduce people's trust in journalism and the media even further. They will not know what is true and what is not true, even in stories that are published on mainstream media sites, because they don't know whether that's written by a bot or not. And that's a huge problem when we look at what happened in the Trump era, I mean, one person I interviewed said he expects to see Trumpism on steroids around the world in the next five to 10 years because people won't trust the media. They'll go more and more down the rabbit holes of their own bigotry that will be backed up and increased by artificial intelligence. We'll see increasing siloing of opinions and really no end to this. I mean, when you think about things like dali and mid-journey creating images as well we don't even know whether what we see is real or not and then on top of that layer the problems with copyright law with people's uh, creativity and artificial uh, creativity and intellectual property being stolen by these websites we'll see an increasing power in the hands of the tech giants and a widening gap between rich and poor. And yes, that sounds dystopian, but unless we step in now with legislation and regulation, that is undoubtedly what will happen.
3: Well, I, I, that was going to be my my final question. You know, this tech is is exploding. It's uh, you know the past several months has been all about Chat GPT and how that might kind of change the way we live. Is it too late, or is there still some hope to to change the, I guess, the path we're going down?
5: I'm a glass half full kind of gal. I don't think it's too late. What we can do is uh, start conversations and educate people, because that's always the best pathway to change. We can do simple things in our own households by. Changing our Siri and Alexa to a male voice, for example, in a domestic setting. Uh, talking to people about catching Shebas instead of Ubers to reduce the overwhelming power of the tech giants in our workplaces. Asking our bosses, you know, where is AI being used in this workplace? Do we audit the AI for bias and is there human oversight? But ultimately, it's up to governments and big tech, big tech, to do something to save humanity.
3: Yeah. Well, here's hoping they do. The book is band-made. It's one of the most timely books I've encountered in a long time. Uh, Congratulations, and thanks so much again for your time, Tracy Spicer.
5: Thank you, Shannon.
0: And that's all we have time for today. Thanks for listening to the Mumbrella Cast. Throw us a follow or subscribe if you're enjoying what you're hearing, and if you're looking for more short-form podcast content, we'll be back tomorrow on the Evening Mumbo feed. Thanks again to Mel and to Tracy for joining us for this double-header interview episode, and thanks again to Demo, Shannon, and of course uh, Khalila. Thanks not just for today, but for everything you've done at Umbrella. We're all going to miss you incredibly. <laughs>